Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is April 13th. In 1976, the United States government reissued the $2 bill as a Federal Reserve note, also called the Bicentennial II. The 1976 $2 bill was redesigned from the previous series. It has a much different look than the 1928 $2 bill, the 1953 $2 bill, and the 1963 $2 bill. Americans were interested in this bill because it had been a long time since paper currency had been redesigned. Previous $2 bill designs featured Jefferson's Monticello estate on the back of the bill. The back design now featured an image of the Declaration of Independence. In addition, the color scheme also changed. The, now, the bill now had a green seal instead of a red seal. The 1976 series was the first issued out to the public on April 13th of 1976. People who received the first day issues went to their local post office so they could get their bills stamped with the date. The value is slightly higher for stamp bills in stamps with unique city names. Star notes are replacement notes that have a star before the serial number. There are both common star notes and rare star notes. What separates them is the Federal Reserve Bank from which they are printed from. These bills were printed from 12 different Federal Reserve Banks and two of them are rare. The Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City and the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis are the rare varieties that you should be looking for. You can check your own bill by looking on the front left hand side to see the issuing bank's name. The common variety 1976 $2 star notes are worth around $8 in fine condition. In uncirculated condition, the price is around $20 to $25 for bills with an MS63 grade. The rare variety star notes can sell for around $80 in fine condition and around $150 in uncirculated condition with a grade of MS63. There is one notable error for this series, but it's not immediately noticeable. On each individual paper currency, there is a serial number which is shown in two places on the front, in the top right and the bottom left. Normally on the serial number is the name in both places, but on the error bill, the serial numbers are different. In most cases, one of the prefixes will be different on the error bill. This was a printing error. This $2 bill error note is worth around $400 in very fine condition. In uncirculated condition, the value is around $800. There are three levels of grading. Fine, a note that shows clear evidence of having been in circulation. Very fine, a note that has been in circulation but not for a very long time. An MS63 choice uncirculated, a note that shows no signs of ever having been in circulation. The note still has its original crispness. The note is also well-centered. In conclusion, most people realize that the 1976 $2 bill isn't quite old enough to become a valuable item. But what most people don't realize is that this bill can be valuable if it has a unique stamp, if it's a rare star note variety, or if it's an error bill. Valuable bills should be placed inside protective currency holders. Scheduled on the 200th anniversary of Jefferson's birth, the dedication of his memorial was the culmination of nearly a decade of planning and construction. In 1943, Franklin Delano Roosevelt dedicated the Thomas Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., dedicated to Thomas Jefferson, the American founding father and third president of the United States. 
The memorial was championed to the Commission of Fine Arts by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the second year of his presidency, and by 1935, Congress had appropriated $3 million for its construction. The groundbreaking was held three years later, and construction was substantially completed by the spring of 1943. Only the bronze statue of Jefferson had not been completed, owing to wartime metal shortages. A painted plaster version was in place for the dedication and would remain until restrictions on metal use were lifted in 1947. Though Roosevelt was widely expected to attend the dedication, he had spoken at both the groundbreaking in 1938 and laying of the cornerstone the following year. His participation wasn't announced until the morning of the ceremony. Traveling from the White House with the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, former First Lady Lou Hoover, and Crown Princess Martha of Norway, the President and his party arrived at the memorial just prior to the start of the noon ceremony. Some 5,000 spectators, including Wendell Wilkie, FDR's Republican opponent in the 1940 presidential election and, who's, and a who's who of the International Diplomatic Corps, were assembled at the plaza in front of the memorial facing the dais, set up on the edge of the tidal basin and covered in red, white, and blue streamers. Under overcast and windy skies, with a backdrop of the fading cherry trees, peak bloom had been reached on April 4th of that year. The ceremony began with remarks by Stuart Gavorny, chairman of the Jefferson Memorial Commission, followed by the invocation from the Right Reverend Henry St. George Tucker, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in America. Next came the national anthem, performed by renowned soprano Grace Moore, during which time Rudolph Evans' statue of Jefferson, covered in flags at the start of the ceremony, was revealed to the audience. Moore was a star with the Metropolitan Opera and Academy Award nominated actress. The cords that uncovered the statue were pulled by two-and-a-half-year-old Anthony Fathman of Pike County, Missouri, the youngest of the more than three dozen descendants of Thomas Jefferson in attendance. President Roosevelt then approached the podium to deliver the dedication address, calling the memorial a shrine to freedom and adding that it was a payment on a debt long overdue. FDR took the opportunity to remind those in attendance and listening via radio across the country of the parallels between Thomas Jefferson's challenges in the founding of the Republic and those being experienced at the time by a nation embroiled in a world war. Roosevelt said, He faced the fact that men who will not fight for liberty can lose it. We too have faced that fact. He lived in a world in which freedom and conscience and freedom of mind were battles still to be fought through, not principles already accepted of all men. We too have lived in such a world. He loved peace and loved liberty, yet on more than one occasion was forced to choose between them. We too have been compelled to make that choice. After the President's six-minute address was concluded, the Marine Band played America, followed by the benediction, and then the crowds were allowed into the memorial as Roosevelt's motorcade returned to the White House. Those who ventured into the memorial chamber found not only the 19-foot-tall plaster statue of Jefferson, but also the original, handwritten version of the Declaration of Independence signed by the delegates, known as the engrossed copy, the same one seen today in the rotunda of the National Archives. Not only was Jefferson's masterwork on display, but in a storyline that would not have been out of place in national treasure. It had come to the memorial from what has described at the time only as a secret place of safekeeping. Shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, thousands of America's most valuable documents in the care of the Library of Congress, including the engrossed copy of the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, a copy of the Magna Carta, and a Gutenberg Bible, were evacuated from Washington in case of attack by the Axis powers. While we know today that they were held in the Bullion Depository in Fort Knox, Kentucky, at the time the destination was a wartime secret, guarded as carefully as the movement of troops according to the contemporary account of the United Press International. 
On April 7, 1943, it was announced that the Declaration of Independence had been removed from its wartime hiding place and would be exhibited in Washington for the opening of the memorial and for a few days afterward, albeit in a steel, lead, and bulletproof case under 24-hour guard of the U.S. Marine Corps, having been exhibited at the foot of Jefferson's statue and viewed by thousands for of for those first few days the memorial was open, the Declaration of Independence was returned to Fort Knox, where it would remain until 1944 when military authorities assured the Library of Congress that the danger of an attack had passed. It was returned to Washington put back on display on October of that year. On April 13, 1931, four firefighters from Chicago Fire Department died in the line of duty during a fire in an underground sewer tunnel. Captain Timothy O'Neill of Truck 14, Firefighter Edward Byron Pratt of Squad 8, and Firefighters William Coyne and William Carsons of Engine 23, along with seven sewer workers, died in the confines of a 450-foot sewer tunnel that was under construction 35 feet below the intersection of 22nd and Laughlin Streets in Chicago. The fire started at approximately 6.30 p.m. when sewer workers using a candle to try and locate a leak in the tunnel accidentally ignited some sawdust. The fire burned and spread for more than 45 minutes before the fire department was alerted. Truck 14, commanded by O'Neill, was the first apparatus on scene. And seeing only a thin curl of smoke rising out of the tunnel, the five firefighters descended into the tunnel via its only access point, an elevator. None of the firefighters were wearing masks or oxygen tank, and 15 minutes after they descended into the tunnel, three of the firefighters emerged, suffering from intense smoke inhalation. As O'Neill and another firefighter, along with several workers, was still in the tunnel, firefighters from Engine 23 entered the tunnel, but they too did not have masks or oxygen tanks, and several of them were also overcome with smoke inhalation inside the tunnel. This scenario was repeated several times as the limited access to the tunnel did not give fire officers an accurate understanding of the intensity of the fire, smoke, and gases inside the tunnel. During the next two hours, more than 50 firefighters who had entered and exited the tunnel were suffering from smoke inhalation injuries. While injured firefighters were rescued during these operations, some of the rescuers became trapped or injured themselves down in the tunnel. The fire department was soon informed of the construction company about the possibility that some of the missing firefighters and sewer workers could have sealed themselves inside an airtight compartment at one end of the tunnel. In actuality, 16 missing firefighters and sewer workers had sealed themselves inside the compartment, but their only means of escape was blocked by fire, smoke, and gases. Firefighters on the surface, however, continued to descend into the tunnel throughout the night in an effort to reach their trapped colleagues. Every firefighter was now equipped with masks and oxygen tanks, but some loaned by suburban fire departments eager to contribute to the rescue efforts. Also during the night, a smoke ejector machine, designed by Chief Charles W. Ringer of the Minneapolis Fire Department, was delivered to Chicago from the manufacturer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The machine consisted of a massive fan mounted on a truck with an intake tube that could be placed inside the tunnel. The machine was put into operation at daylight and it soon evacuated most of the smoke and toxic gases from the tunnel. The 16 firefighters and sewer workers sealed in the airtight compartment were soon able to escape and over the next few hours, firefighters were able to recover the bodies of the dead firefighters and sewer workers from the tunnel. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com The 1976 U.S. $2 bill at SilverRecyclers.com Thomas Jefferson Memorial at NPS.gov and Chicago Tunnel Fires at www.fsi.illinois.edu
The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.